And so it happened that when that SS guy came through inspecting with his whip and his stick, hateful, strutting in, at that time my arms gave way and that drill came falling down. Oh, was he mad. You damned Jew, the SS guard said. The SS man grabs a shovel. He hits Lubinsky in the back, crushing part of it. He kicks him when he goes down, then takes out his whip. Lubinsky curses the German. He is now beyond caring about his fate. I didn't care. I thought I was going anyway. The heck with him. What kept me going, I guess, was a fighting hate. I wanted to get out of there. I was going to get out somehow and kill those dirty sons of bitches. Every afternoon when the sun shines, four or five old women gather on a bench in the main square of Berga. The town is quiet today, too quiet. A flag flaps. Children's voices carry from distant gardens of roses and sunflowers. An air of abandonment pervades the neighborhood. The plasterwork of the town hall is crumbling. The textile factory that once produced kit for the doped and indomitable East German Olympic team is a ghostly sprawl. A new clock scarcely uplifts a red-brick train station that has not been refurbished in decades. In the west of Germany, after World War II, the past was quickly swept away. All the putrescent ruins of war were removed to make way for shopping centers and slabs of abstract art, and homes with geranium-filled window boxes, places so anodyne, so lulled by prosperity, they speak only of a placid existence and the rewards of striving. Chapter 2 Sucker Punch Within days the gruesome became commonplace. Private William J. Shapiro would watch from a distance as shells slammed into foxholes and know, before he got there, what to expect. Body parts all over the place, intestines spilled, blood seeping into the earth. He would look for movement, signaling life. Without it, or a sound, however faint, there was no point hanging around. To do so was to invite being hit by the next round. In combat he had learned quickly that the most important thing was to keep moving no matter what. As a frontline medic with the 28th Infantry Division, Shapiro, aged 19, had to look out for the living. It was not his job to tag the mounting American dead. More than 11,000 of them in Normandy within four weeks of D-Day, June 6, 1944. But life could be hard to discern in the carnage. Chest wounds were often invisible because the blood did not always soak through uniforms, with the result that the injury was betrayed only by gasping. Morphine was the standard treatment. Shapiro carried the drug in tiny, needle-tipped aluminum tubes. After giving the injection, he would tag the injured soldier to ensure that another dose was not administered too soon by somebody back at the battalion aid station. If a G.I. was hit in a limb, Shapiro would give the shot and apply a tourniquet. Then word was sent with a rifleman or runner for the litter-bearers to come and collect the wounded and the dead. Triage was done back at the aid station by the medical officer, but Shapiro could not help doing his own. He found that he involuntarily distinguished those who would survive from those who would not. 
death did not advance unannounced. It clouded the eyes before occupying them entirely, a sudden blankness. As for his own mortality, in combat Shapiro scarcely gave it a thought. Through the French hedgerows he would follow fifty yards behind the rifleman of his platoon. If one was hit and shouted, Medic! he would rush forward to see what had happened. That movement, into a position where a fellow soldier had just been hit by shrapnel or a bullet, became automatic. Shapiro, through a mysterious process, was subsumed into his unit. An unspoken pact existed. The riflemen protected him until they no longer could, whereupon he tried to save them. His individuality, his life itself, had ceased to have much meaning. All that was left was what had to be done, provide relief where possible. The fear that haunted him on arrival in Normandy